the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. This is episode 32. I am Leah Heigl and I am here with my co-host Aidan Muir. And today we're going to be exploring non-traditional approaches to type 2 diabetes management. So as like effective background, I suppose we need to know what is type 2 diabetes and I guess just the relevant background info for the rest of everything we're going to go through with management and stuff like that. I'm going to try and like cliff notes this do as, as simply as possible. But basically, better, probably a better way to phrase this, but it, it is an inability to, in, to effectively remove glucose from the blood due to either or both insulin resistance or the capacity of the pancreas to produce enough insulin. Usually it's a combination of both of those things. And the reason this matters is because type 2 diabetes, if not managed well, can increase the risk of conditions such as cardiovascular disease, chronic kidney disease, eye problems, and peripheral neuropathy. And as more background, I guess, um, all carbs break down to glucose in the blood. A lot of people will link diabetes with sugar because it is blood sugars or blood glucose, but all carbohydrates break down to glucose in the blood. Sugar is a form of carbohydrate and sugar or other high GI carbohydrates just get to becoming glucose quicker. They raise glucose levels quicker, but all carbs break down to glucose in the blood. Adding another variable, protein, can be converted to glucose. So that can also raise blood glucose levels. And fat doesn't directly raise glucose usually, but it can indirectly raise glucose in terms of, say you had a meal that had a certain amount of protein and carbs, and you compared that to a meal that had the same amount of protein and carbs, but it had fat added to it, it would raise glucose more, arguably because it can do some of the functions that the protein and carbs were going to do. So it takes over some of those roles and then there'd be more of the protein and carbs available to be converted to glucose that were not used for other functions. And the final kind of piece of like background in terms of when we're looking at management and stuff like that, because one of it is obviously how do we get less glucose into the blood to need to be taken out by insulin and stuff like that. Um, the other kind of variable is like the insulin resistance side of things. So if somebody had excess body fat, decreasing body fat could reduce insulin resistance and might also improve the ability of the pancreas to put out insulin as well. So these are kind of factors to be considered. That was a very brief summary for a very complex condition, but I feel like that's a little bit of background before we go further. Yeah, type 2 diabetes, it's, it's a very complex condition. Yeah. I remember even being in university and just really struggling with that mm. that topic. And I had to go over it so many times before I really got a good handle on it. Um, but usually the big question that comes up with the management of diabetes is, do you chase remission or do you just manage that condition? So remission is defined as blood glucose markers staying in the non-diabetic range for six months without any medication. So a caveat to this is that if you were to follow a low-carb diet to achieve that, but it hadn't addressed the actual disease, like the insulin resistance and the pancreas aspect of things, is it really remission? So you have good blood glucose markers because you're on a low-carb diet and therefore don't require that insulin to work. Um, so all your blood markers are good, but is that really remission? Probably not. I wouldn't think it would be. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's it's a complex thing because it's like the, the condition is better managed and everything like that. But like 
What if you did have a high carb meal and your blood glucose levels weren't high? What if you took the oral glucose tolerance test and your body still had this inability to clear glucose in an effective rate? That's that's the thing. That's not necessarily being like, oh, well, low carb diets are a bad way of managing. It's it's not saying that at all. Mm-hmm. It's just like if we're defining remission, you could be meeting the criteria by that technical deficient that technical definition. Yes, but really, it's probably not. Building on that caveat, though, what if you did follow a low-carb diet and you got to the point that your insulin sensitivity had improved due to loss of body fat and everything like that, and then you could have higher-carb meals down the line without it going too high and stuff like that, blood glucose levels? That would be... That's a good point, too. You that can, would be you remission. You can do both at the same yeah. time. You can manage the condition through having low-carbohydrate diet, but also be working on the things that put you into actual remission and treat that condition. So that's a good point as well. Um, I think the big thing to to note here is that remission is unfortunately incredibly rare and a very difficult thing to achieve, even before the disease has progressed to the point of medication. Um, so the direct trial we will definitely touch on in a fair bit of detail later, um, but they had 149 non-insulin dependent people with diabetes go through the standard model of care for diabetes management in the UK and just 4% went into remission over 12 months. That's a pretty dire statistic, 4%. Yeah, for sure. And like the fact that like in that trial, they weren't really far progressed. They weren't on insulin. They usually had a not a super fresh diagnosis, but they hadn't had type 2 diabetes. Like typically they hadn't had it for a long period of time. If anything, they're probably the most likely people to be going into remission and only 4% went into remission in, in 12 months, as you said. And like, the reason we've kind of picked that is it's kind of like the the easiest way we can kind of like find statistics showing how hard it is to get remission, how unlikely it is. A lot of people talk about it being a progressive condition. This is hard because a lot of people on one side of the fence just call it a, a disease that's not curable. It's a progressive condition. Um, curable, that's, that's another conversation, <laughs> yeah. but like the remission thing. Whereas like the other people like criticizing people in charge for not necessarily aiming for remission but when you look at four percent that kind of number it's quite rare to happen and if every single person with diabetes was chasing remission like based on that statistic 96 percent of people are probably going to be disappointed yeah and i think remission is one of those things that is it's a very difficult thing to achieve so i think you need to be the kind of person that is really gung-ho and like ready to adapt your whole lifestyle to getting that remission um, but it's, it's a very deep rabbit hole to go down. But I think it's important to just differentiate managing versus treating this condition. And whilst they can be one and the same, they're often separate. Yeah. And we'll come back to like, is, is it worth chasing in a second? Because I suppose we'd go through what needs to be achieved for remission to put that in context. So typically for remission to occur, there often needs to be two aspects kind of factored in. So one of them is a pretty significant decrease in body fat, which can help increase insulin sensitivity and maybe gain in muscle, which also can help the increase in insulin sensitivity. The gain in muscle is a bit of a rarer case. Like I don't actually see that very much in a lot of people who do achieve remission, but like I have seen that a little bit. Some people have definitely noticed the benefit in terms of they've lost a lot of body fat. They've been around the border of being in remission or maybe they have been in remission or whatever. And then they've like taken up CrossFit or something like that and they've gained a little bit of muscle. And they're like, oh, my blood glucose levels have managed a little bit more easily. Um, 
So that, that's the key for managing the insulin sensitivity aspect of it and potentially increasing the pancreas's ability to put out insulin. But another factor is just like also managing blood glucose levels in the HbA1c. So HbA1c is basically like a long-term measurement of your average blood glucose levels. It's based on your red blood cells, which have like an average lifespan of three months, which is why it's a three-month test. Um, and... To manage blood glucose levels, like if there is, say, a reduction in calories and carbohydrates potentially or lower glycemic carbohydrates and, say, you're exercising and exercising burns through some of that glucose as well, that will also help in the management of HbA1c and blood glucose levels in the short term, which would also contribute to meeting this criteria for remission. Um, another factor that I wanted to touch on, though, that, that makes it a bit more of an interesting discussion as well is metformin so mm. it's not as popular in the biohacking space now but it definitely like <clears throat> five to ten years ago it still does exist but like in that space but like five to ten years ago healthy people were taking metformin in the pursuit of longevity because there's minimal downsides there is arguably some downsides but there's minimal downsides and improving insulin sensitivity is usually a good thing. It also improves the ability of the pancreas to put out insulin as well. It does a lot of good things, particularly for somebody with diabetes or who is at risk of diabetes with minimal downsides. There is some downsides, but it's minimal. And to achieve remission, you need to be on no medication. So you'd have to come off all medications, including metformin, which is an interesting kind of discussion. Because is that just a definition thing? That's just to meet the definition. Yeah. So it's kind of like if you're chasing the definition, you'd have to do that. So, like, most people probably don't care about the definition, but, like, the, that is something to consider as well. But, like, taking the metformin aspect out of it and just going back to the significant decreases in body fat and all the other things that would probably be required to achieve remission, is it worth chasing? Like, that also comes back to our haze kind of discussion that yeah. we had a few weeks back. Um, what is the likelihood of somebody losing quite a large amount of body fat and maintaining that weight loss for multiple years. Is that something that is likely to happen? Yeah, and there's also the the people that, I mean, I've definitely run into people that are just fallen into that overweight category but have a lot of abdominal fat and yeah. have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and are diet resistant. Like, I think we had this discussion that type 2 diabetes is not something I see a lot in clinic. But the two cases I have had, smaller women with that really were very diet resistant in their 70s. So for those people, weight reduction, I don't know, that's that's a hard thing for them. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Like and there's a lot of a lot of approaches you could take, but it's definitely something to think about in terms of <clears throat> only a small percentage of people achieving it and like there is downsides like as we spoke about dieting is a contact sport. Mm. Just because somebody has diabetes doesn't doesn't reduce that risk. Like it's still a risk to to go down. Um, so suppose before we go through non-traditional approaches, we probably have to touch on what is the traditional approach, particularly in Australia, like what is the standard model of care in Australia right now? Yeah. So when you, I guess you go to see a GP or you go to see a dietitian for managing your type two diabetes, the, the first lifestyle things that we'd usually address is likely for a lot of people that modest weight loss. That is something that, you know, in the research has been shown to be quite effective, even like 5 to 10% of your body weight um, in, in improving the outcomes of, of type 2 diabetes uh, for patients that are, that are overweight. So sometimes that can be a part of it. Um, but the, the larger part of it is usually moderating carbohydrate intake and glycemic load. 
So kind of spacing your carbohydrates evenly out over the day, not having too much in one sitting, like really high levels of carbohydrates in one sitting that's going to um, spike your, your insulin. Um, so that's a part of it um, and being low, low GI sources. What would you say when, when most dietitians are talking about moderating carbohydrate intake, what would you say that that comes out as on a per meal basis, on a across the day basis? Like what would you say for that? So usually a lot of dietitians would recommend that you have kind of two to three serves of carbohydrates, like 30 to 45 grams um, for meals and, and one to two smaller serves for snacks. So you're really spreading that quite evenly throughout the day to manage um, that glucose and that, that insulin. So that would be the standard model of care. Um, so it's not particularly like low carb, it's just moderating and spreading yeah. out your carb intake. More yeah. So. And like I've, I've seen like dietitians put it out there in terms of being like, okay, your main meal should have that 30 to 45 and then your snacks, you should have two or three snacks per day and should come out as this amount. Um, not necessarily putting a limit on, which could be a, dif- a different kind of discussion as well, being like, okay, that could be the maximum 45 grams of a main meal or something like that. And I've seen some patients inter- or clients interpret that as as if they were told to increase their carbohydrate intake. But doing the maths on the top end of all of those ranges, it comes out as a maximum of about 180 grams of carbohydrate per day, assuming you went with the top end of that. I believe the average person probably has around 300 grams of carbohydrate per day. Obviously, some go higher, some go lower. Most people probably wouldn't necessarily be aware that they have that amount of carbohydrates per day as well. And when we look at that, that that is quite literally a modest reduction in carbohydrates. Like it is a, it is a modest reduction in carbohydrates. Um, and then when you, if you framed it slightly differently being like, okay, let's put this kind of, I don't know, maximum number of say 45 grams in a main meal or whatever, so that there's no spikes in blood glucose levels as well. So that's not just HbA1c the long term, that is just in, inside a day, there's no particularly big spikes of blood glucose levels or whatever. Um, it is it is a bit of a moderate approach that could probably would improve the management for most people. It's not as aggressive as a low carb approach but it is still lower carb than what most people are doing. But it, it also does rely on adherence to, so to speak, like in terms of yeah. like, it comes back to a bit of a concept of, even though like on average, it's like, okay, reduce the glycemic index or reduce the glycemic load. It is still a bit of a, you can eat anything, but not everything approach. Some people would interpret that being like with the snacks or whatever, maybe you could have a small slice of cake occasionally within that 30 grams of carbohydrates at snacks, but you couldn't have a large slice, okay, because that would be more than that. Yeah, it's a very, like, middle-of-the-road management strategy that's probably going to be doable for a lot of people. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of management is. It's, like, what's going to be feasible for people to follow and also quite effective because you do need both of those things in order to have an impact on someone's life. Yeah. And another thing that we'll briefly touch on is, like, the Medicare system in Australia. Mm. So... Chronic disease management plans, like if you go see a GP and you have a chronic disease such as diabetes or type 2 diabetes, you would get five sessions per year to split across allied health professionals. Um, The rebate comes out as about $55. So if an allied health professional was to bulk bill and you would have the free session, you would, they would get paid $55 
for the session if that was their business if somebody else has hired them then the business would get $55 and they'd only get a small cut or a salary or like whatever they're on um, and it's definitely something to think about in terms of five sessions split between say dietitian exercise physiologist podiatrist diabetes educator like if you if you've got diabetes there's you a need lot of all of that yeah <laughs> there's a lot of things you could benefit from um, so like what I typically would say as a dietitian when I was doing more of that that kind of work in terms of like chronic disease management plans is I'd probably get two sessions per year with somebody with diabetes. And it's like, if I chose to bulk bill, any business that I was working for probably only would want me to see them for 20 minutes because it doesn't really make business sense to send spend say an hour with that person because $55 when there's the medical center taking a cut and then the business is taking a cut, then there'd be no money left over for the dietitian. Mm. Um, And you've also like got to factor in that, you've got to write GP letters, you've got to, there's admin work, there's all these other things that need to be done as well. Um, so it's something to consider that it's like, okay, if they're not charging a gap, there's probably not a lot of time. If they're charging a gap, it's an, it's an expense for the patient basically. And two sessions, it's, it's, it's hard to change somebody's life in it's, two sessions. Especially with diabetes. It's a lot of people come to a dietitian and they've not even really been given a good explanation of what that condition is and how it affects yeah. them. So you think like, that in itself could take one session or more, um, let alone understanding its actual management or deciding on the best management approach for that person. So it's a lot. Yeah, exactly. And like, even though we've like skimmed over it, we've talked about the weight loss stuff and we've talked about the um, carbohydrate kind of stuff. Like I, I would often struggle in that setting being like, well, what do I focus on? Like if they choose never to come back to see me or another dietitian or whatever, I want to cover the carbohydrate stuff. Yes. <laughs> but like, then we talked about like how weight loss could help. And it's like, well, that that takes many sessions like I've got to spend a lot of time on that as well like and it's hard to cover everything that somebody needs to know in one to two sessions particularly if they're short sessions so the reason why I say that is it's kind of like that's another thing to factor in when we're looking at how the standard model of care performs in terms of overall management and remission rates and stuff like that because it's like that's what typically would happen if somebody wasn't going out of their way to do a lot more beyond the chronic disease management plans, like seeing dietitians long-term and stuff like that, paying out of pocket, all those other added expenses, time investments and all these things as well. Yes, yeah, so just from a logistical perspective, the standard model of care probably could use improvement. I don't like, in terms of the direct trial, I don't know what it, like what standard care is in the UK, but I assume it's probably something similar yeah. to what we've got here. Yeah, that's exactly the yeah. assumption I made. So what I reckon we're going to do is we're going to we're going to call it here and call this part one of the part two because we have a lot we, we want to cover in the non-traditional approaches. And I just wanted to like, I wanted to get the background covered to set us up for the next one. Um, so in the next one, we're going to be talking about very low calorie diets. We're going to be talking about that direct trial. We're going to talk about low carb diets. We're going to talk about plant-based diets. And we're going to also touch on like broad approaches and like what I personally think I would do in that kind of situation as well and stuff we can go through there. So we'll call this part one. So thank you for listening to episode 32 of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast and we'll see you for the next one.